I've noticed that almost always the, at the root of most of my children's fears is a falsehood. The root of most of my children's fear is a falsehood. You know, a monster coming into the house to get them. You know, bad guys entering the house or the wind and the rain, you know, hurting our home, things like that. And I've noticed something more than that. The remedy to those fears is the truth. So when fear enters their hearts, it's my job as their father to remind them of the truth and let the truth have its peaceful effect in their life. So I remind them there's no such thing as monsters. They're going to be okay. And that we live in a strong house. Wind and rain aren't going to hurt it. And that if there are any bad guys, they have to come through daddy. At least to them I appear intimidating, so, you know, whatever. (laughs) But likewise, we're the same way. We have, we struggle with fears, worries, and anxiety as well. And most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, it's usually also caused by a falsehood that we are believing, or at least a half-truth about provision, a half-truth about whether or not God cares enough about us to help us. But, likewise with my children, the remedy is the same. Truth dispels falsehood and the fears that are associated with it, which is why we need the truth of God's word to speak truth and restore peace to our lives, like of the medicine our hearts so desperately need in those moments. Which is why deviating from that truth can be so dangerous and have so, cause so much chaos in our lives and why Jesus warns against exactly that in our passage this morning. At the end of our time together last week, Jesus had just left the Gentile Decapolis region for the area of Magadan on the Israel side once again. And after his warm reception with the Gentiles and the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus runs into his old friends, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 1 of today's text that says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, I know it doesn't look that scandalous to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees together because we, we're used to seeing this in the scriptures. But it, it's lost on us how much these two actually hated each other. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were enemies of each other in the first century. I mean, this is like watching Democrats and Republicans working together. It's about that radical. I know. (laughs) Usually you only see those two working together when it's really serious. So that ought to give us a hint to how serious they're treating Jesus at this point. They're seeing him as a common threat to the religious establishment of the time. They do not like him. They want to get rid of him. Now, who are these people? What exactly do they believe? Well, the Pharisees we've covered pretty thoroughly, so we're not going to spend that much time on them this morning. But their teaching, which comes up later, in addition to all their character flaws, their teaching was legalism. 
legalism, seeking to establish their own righteousness through observing the law and observing their traditions to the T. Very strict. The Sadducees we've heard less about up to this point, but they were the theological liberals of their day. Now, when I say liberal, I don't mean they have a different version of taxation that they believe should be imposed. Uh, there's a time and a place for that, and it's not at the pulpit to discuss. But it's a, the- for a theological liberal is somebody who is taking their religion as a means to an end, not the end unto itself. It's uh, religion exists to make you a better person. And that's all that really matters, being a good person. And furthermore, the Sadducees, much like other theological liberals, they don't believe in much other than God. You know, the Sadducees did not believe in angels, miracles, the afterlife, or even the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in any of those things, which is perhaps why they were sad, you see. (laughs) Terrible joke, I know, I know. It's an easy way to remember who they are, though, and what they believe, which is why I keep saying that. But both the spirit of the Pharisees, who were legalists, and the spirit of the Sadducees, who were liberals, are still very much alive and well in the church today, aren't they? I mean, the modern legalist, the modern Pharisee would say something like, oh, well, you aren't a real Christian like we are. We are the true church. We say the right prayers. We use the right Bible. We fast and do all the right rituals and so on and so forth. Boasting about their own righteousness and how they are a good person in their eyes of their religion. The liberal, on the other hand, again, you guys have heard this before. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Does that really matter? Is the Bible really relevant? Do we really need it anymore? Isn't religion just about being a better person? So on and so forth. Now, what do those two have in common? It's about being a better person. It's about establishing your own righteousness. It's about using religion to make you uh, a better person. It's all about you. Your religion is all about you and your own works. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Neither camp, neither case teaches why Jesus actually came. Leonard Ravenhill, I think, beautifully worded it when he said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why Jesus came. Not to make me a better, not because I'm a better person, but because I'm not. That I needed a righteousness apart from the law to restore me to God. I needed his atoning work. I needed Jesus to stand in my place to forgive me of my sin. That's the good news. So no, it's not as these guys were doing, which was taking Jesus and making him fit into your life or your ways or your religious system. It's about discarding those things and following him. That's what biblical Christianity is about. Seeking his righteousness, not my own. And so these two groups approach Jesus to test him, this text says, by asking for a sign from heaven. Which, of course, is 
Incredibly ironic because Jesus is the sign from heaven, we're told. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus, the virgin birth, was the sign from heaven. But worse yet, these guys had already made up their minds about Jesus. That they weren't genuinely asking him for a sign. We could almost believe that at at face value, but we must remember, we're in chapter 16 at this point. These guys have already said that, oh, Jesus only does miracles by, by, by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. That's why they are thinking he's doing all of these miracles and casting out of demons. Everything after that point is just a facade. It's not true. They're not genuinely asking for a sign. They're building their case against Jesus because they've already determined whatever good he does is just satanic trickery. There was absolutely no room in their hearts for Jesus. They'd already made up their minds. So Jesus points out their spiritual blindness in verse 2 where it says, He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It is fair weather, or it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? <laughs> you see, there was nothing wrong with their physical eyesight, but their, any spiritual perception they had was gone. <laughs> Red Sea at night, sailors delight, right? Red Sea at warning, sailors be at warning. You guys have all heard that. I mean, I remember my mom teaching me that back in first grade, second grade. But um, whatever the case may be, you know, weather is predictable like that. It's not a difficult concept to grasp. But, and biblical prophecy ought to have been the same as well. It ought to have been. I mean, these guys were people who studied the scriptures, who made their life around the scriptures, but they couldn't see what was right before them. These guys couldn't, were standing before Jesus, the man who restored sight to the blind, who raised the dead, healed the sick, fed the hungry, who happened to be born in Bethlehem, and who happened to be of the lineage of King David. And you don't know who this guy is? This is blindness. For supposed scholars, this ought to have been as plain as the skies to them. Now Jesus dismisses them with a line he had told them back in chapter 12 in verse 4 that says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, we already covered this a few chapters ago, but just by way of reminder, just as Jonah was swallowed by the fish and was in the heart of the sea for three days before rising again, so Jesus was swallowed in the, by the grave and was in the heart of the earth for three days before rising again. Jesus is making a very purposeful parallel there. Of course, Jesus had a much more glorious resurrection than Jonah did. Those of you who know the story. 
But this is, again, another undeniable sign. To this day, Jesus has no tomb. I can go and visit the tombs of all the great leaders of the earth, all the great religious leaders of the earth. I can't go visit the grave of Jesus. He is not there. He is risen. I know I'm a few weeks early for Easter, but it's true every year. (laughs) It's true every Sunday. The tomb is empty, testifying to the truth of the gospel. But yet, yet they denied that too, as we'll see when we get to that point in the passage. But by the way, the Sadducees, again, these guys didn't believe in the supernatural at all. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. In fact, they didn't even believe in the majority of the Old Testament up until this point. It stopped to them at the book of Deuteronomy. They only believed the first five books of the Bible. So it would have been, it, they would have hated this reference from Jesus, that, that identifying his own resurrection with one of the most controversial passages of Scripture, with Jonah. I mean, the liberals to this day mock, oh, did that really happen? Was Jonah really uh, in in a fish for three days? Come on, let's be reasonable. Well, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to realize the guy who walked out of the grave, and if he says what happened with Jonah was real and based his physical death and resurrection on what Jonah said, that's good enough for me. The guy who came out of the grave can interpret the Bible for me however he likes. And that's what Jesus believed about Scripture. So that's going to be my belief. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) But either way, after they departed, it appears the disciples forgot something in the intensity of this exchange between the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 5. Where it says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I love this, by the way. Jesus, once again, taking from his surroundings, taking from what's going on with his disciples to give them a teaching moment. Jesus was just a masterful teacher like that. But they didn't quite get the point. They were distracted because verse 7 says, and then they began discussing it among themselves, saying, "Uh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you do not have bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus tries to warn his disciples about the dangers of the spreading and permeation of the legalism and liberalism of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Again, that leaven of itself speaks of permeation and spreading. A lot of people teach that Leaven is about sin. That's not entirely true. Leaven is often used in scriptural passages speaking about permeation, how it spreads. Often used in a negative context. Often used in connection with sin. But most times just means spreading, which their teaching very much did. 
I mean, liberalism and legalism has spread through the church for 2,000 years now and is still well and alive today. But they couldn't hear this warning. The disciples couldn't hear this point because they were worried about bread and they couldn't think past that. It's important to understand their problem wasn't an intellectual one. It wasn't that they weren't unable that they were unable to understand a metaphor. That's not here. Nor was it that they were so hungry that they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. It hadn't been that long since their last meal. That's not the point. It was a lack of faith that led to their misunderstanding of Jesus at this point. We're, we're, we ought to see a connection between Peter's little faith from a few chapters ago. The the disciples' lack of faith here and the Canaanite woman's great faith that we just covered the other week. You see, that Canaanite woman fully turned to Jesus, fully trusted him, believing that he was able to and willing to meet her daughter's desperate need. And despite having essentially zero experience with him up until that point, that's amazing faith. Not growing up in Israel, not growing up anywhere in the church, having almost no experience in the scriptures, but yet displaying such great faith. It's beautiful. And yet the disciples who have been with them for about two years at this point, having watched Jesus feed tens of thousands of people with just some leftover lunches, and they're still worried about bread? Something's wrong here. This is the lack, this is a displayed lack of faith in Jesus' ability and willingness to provide for them that his closest followers ought to have been passed at this point. This ought to have been beyond them. They ought to have learned this lesson by now. Here's what I mean by that. If you have experienced the power, mercy, provision, protection, and love of God in your own life, then you exhibit unbelief and a lack of faith if you don't trust him with that same thing when it happens again to you in the future. This is exactly what made the Israelites' perpetual sin in the wilderness so bad. I mean, those of you who've been following our Bible in a year program have seen this time and time again by this point, that what are the Israelites constantly doing despite God delivering them from Egypt through the plagues, parting the Red Sea, it literally raining bread from heaven, and they spend most of their time doing what? Complaining. Grumbling, arguing, rebelling. Are you kidding me? Despite the things that they have seen, they still have the audacity to complain? That's shameful considering what God has done for them. But before I point the finger too hard at them, we do the same thing, don't we? We could go around this room and share story after story of, a miraculous, of the miraculous things God has done for us. The ways he showed up last minute in incredible ways, providing for us. 
seemingly doing the impossible. And yet we, we still grumble and complain when, by comparison, the tiniest things happen and the tiniest disappointments happen. As if those same stories we ourselves shared didn't happen. That's our problem. And it's not on God's side because God doesn't change. The same God who loves us and has made countless promises to us in Scripture will still do so today. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hasn't changed. Therefore, the same God who made all of those promises about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field that we covered back in Matthew 6, those are still true of us today, 2,000 years later. So our problem isn't that God changes. Our problem is we forget. We change. And we doubt in our unbelief. And worrying if God is able or willing to do what he has already done even to us personally, in the past. Which was exactly the point of why we read Joshua chapter 4 for our first reading this morning. That's what all of that was about. The, the, the prior generation that had grumbled in their unbelief in the wilderness had passed away at this point. And it was finally time for Israel to enter into the promised land. And God let this new generation experienced another miracle for themselves, the crossing of the Jordan River on dry ground, just like they had crossed over the Red Sea to get out of Egypt. So they would cross the Jordan to enter into Israel now. And what is the first thing Joshua has the people do? They set a stone to represent each of the 12 tribes Stacking them as a memorial to that moment. And why did they do that? So that all who would come by there over the years, whether it be them themselves to be reminded or children who were too young to understand or children yet to come, they would come by and ask about that pile of rocks. And they would hear about God's provision. They would hear about his love, his power, and his mercy displayed for Israel and be inspired to follow the same God who did that can do the same things today and do things like that for those who love him. That was the point of that passage. So my question to you is this this morning. What's your memorial stone? When have you experienced the power, provision, protection, or love of God in your own life that you can hold on to and remember and point back to and say, this is what God has done for me? I think it's only fair that I share my own story. I've told this story before, and those of you who know me really well are probably sick of hearing it at this point, but it's my memorial stone, so I'm going to share it anyway. You know, I... I always look back to this moment when I was going to go on my very first missions trip back in college. And I woke up the morning I was supposed to leave for that trip in the most pain I've ever been in my whole life. I had, um, I've, 
dealt with back in a back injury going back many years at this point and I just had this I woke up for the first time with terrible sciatic pain just shooting down my leg I, every step I had was just the worst pain I've ever been in up until that point and it was just horrible but crazy long story short I knew that I still had to go on that mission strip God just gave me this assurance by his holy spirit that everything was going to work out and that all of the planning and fundraising that had gone into this trip wasn't going to be wasted. And so we departed. And two days of traveling later and two days of pure misery, let me assure you later, I woke up the day we're going to go evangelizing in the city completely healed. And I felt better than I had in a whole year. I mean, not only did my leg feel better, my back felt fine, everything felt wonderful. I... I can only describe that as a miracle to the glory of God. Because, look, I've had back problems before. I've had back problems since. I've never had it come on that strongly and quickly and disappear that rapidly. Not to mention, in that context, do it, going out there to, for the sheer purpose of getting the gospel out there, getting God's message out there, and that's when I experienced that? Are you kidding me? That's my personal memorial stone moment. And all the crazy things God has asked me to do that since that moment have been defined by that moment. So to this day, when God calls me to do something that I might think might be crazy, I just remind myself, you know, God's done, God's asked me to do crazier things since then. Let's do it. I don't know how he's going to provide, but... I just know he's going to because he's shown me personally that he can. And I cling to those moments. What's your moment? As you are sitting there, what, when have you experienced anything even on the spectrum of that? And do you live your life today in light of God's power he showed you yesterday? Or are we like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, constantly forgetting what God has done. And perhaps maybe if you haven't seen God work like that in your life yet, perhaps it's time to step out and see maybe, maybe what God does have in store, what God can do in your life. So, maybe if, that, if, that, if that's you this morning... Maybe you should come with me uh, to the table after service. Help, help me pass out some gospel tracts. Help me tell some people about Jesus. Maybe see if he shows up in that capacity in your life. Or if you can't, understandably, you got other things going on, where can you step out and see God move in your life in a new way? Maybe that's signing up to help with the nursery. Maybe that's signing up to help with the food pantry. Or with some of those crazy outdoor events we have planned for the coming, uh, coming months as it finally gets warmer up here. Step out to see if God can do it. Because he will show you that he can. I believe that firmly in my heart. And I'm grateful for those moments early in my Christian life where I had people in my life that were encouraging me to do crazy things like that. Because now I can look back on it and be encouraged by it. You know, when you're a new believer, you don't have those moments. I understand. If 
you haven't had those experiences yet with God, it can be harder. But God's word is even more true than your own experiences are. So lean on his word, even if you can't lean on your own experience. It is more true and more faithful in the end anyway. So the bottom line is, if you doubt that God can or would do something for you, look to your own personal history. Look to your own memorial stone moments. And if we're asking, is, is God still willing to? Which is a whole other question. Well, that's an easy question. Look to the cross. Romans 8.32 beautifully says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Compared to the cross, anything that you could ask of God is dust on the scale by comparison. So if we ask Anything in his name, we're asking for, the, for his glory, for the furtherance of his name. We can expect an answer from God. His answer is, might be different than what we expect. That happens sometimes, and we ask according to his name, his will, his nature, not our own. <laughs> One time I asked God for a great financial blessing. His answer was a job. Not quite as fun or as exciting, but God still provided. He answers his pray- every prayer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait, sometimes it's maybe, but he hears us and he answers according to his timing and his glory. So, as we quickly close out in verse 12, it says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They finally understand, after this reminder, that the real danger wasn't their provisional needs. Those things are taken care of. The true danger was the legalism and liberalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what should be, they should be concerned about. That's what they need to be spending their time avoiding and fearing and purging from the church. Six chapters ago, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. A lack of bread cannot kill your soul. But legalism and liberalism can. Because they will lead you down a false gospel. A gospel that cannot save you. A gospel that is not rooted in the finished atoning work of Christ on the cross. And that empty tomb. Their religion could bypass that and be okay. But not scripturally. But even more than that, even at a personal level, not only can that... That false gospel cannot save. It cannot compare to the peace that true Christianity, the promises of God clearly revealed in his word, can give us today. It, it, It doesn't offer the same peace that we have. You know, just a few... Just to share something real quick off the cuff, one, one verse that the legalist or the liberal cannot answer is Romans 5.1 that says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a system that is up to you and your works and what you have to do, you cannot have peace with God. You never have enough peace because you're always wondering, have I done enough? Do I need to do more? Do I need to fast more? Do I need to take in these sacraments more? What do I need to do to be more? You never have peace with God. But when you've been justified by faith, simply to the cross I cling, as the hymn says, then you can experience his fullness of peace and joy and experience the relationship with God that we are intended to have and not this system of works that so many people get lost in and robbed of their joy and robbed of their peace. So guys, look, I know that my sermons can be long sometimes. I know I could be lost in the details and get into the nitty-gritty going through verse by verse, and it seems like I stop at every comma sometimes. I get it. But I can assure you guys, there's a reason. We go verse by verse through the scriptures here because nothing is more practical than sound theology. Nothing will give you more peace than when you understand the gospel as has been revealed in scripture. In my mind, nothing is more practical and worthy of our time than that. Thanks be to God. Amen.